0: Hello again. Welcome to another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan, and uh, it's a real privilege to serve you with this uh, podcast, this ever-evolving podcast that uh, hopefully gets better in quality and substance every time. Our fundamental goal at Knowing God with Heart and Mind is knowing God with heart and mind. And as we discovered in last week's lesson, it's as much about knowing God's heart and mind as it is making that connection. I guess if we get right down to it, when we get to the Holy Spirit portion of our study in a few weeks, you'll be able to make the connection that it is through our rebirth in the Spirit that we begin to get our heart and mind in synchronization with God's heart and mind. That's the goal. And that's why we do this study each week. Our our primary focus Is Scripture, but in this case, we're using a uh, course of study that uh, we began about three weeks ago called Christian Believer, which is uh, based in the Christian Believer Bible study and uh, doctrinal study presented by the Cokesbury people and written by the wonderful scholar J. Ellsworth Callis. And so, we begin again. This time, our lesson is lesson number three. God's Book for God's People. But before we begin, a couple of quick announcements. Well, as longtime listeners know, I have had a uh, little bit of a uh, fun with my fantasy world, where I just like to make up stories about my surroundings and uh, and uh, bring a little bit of life to to the environment. And since the uh, podcast has moved from Parsons Prairie to the pastor's basement and Jasper, uh, it's been a little bit difficult. I've talked with somebody this week who said, you know, Parsons Prairie just sounds interesting and far away, and then there's just Jasper. Well, Jasper's fascinating, and uh, I guess it would be, uh, if if there was a sort of German American version of Mayberry, it might look like Jasper uh, in 2017. Anyway, I don't know. But what I ha- what I can tell you is, is certain things have begun to develop in a fun way, and uh, my my imagination hasn't changed any since I have moved here. Uh, for example, I want to tell you about some of the fun friends that we have in the backyard here at the pastor's house. Uh, If you look out in our backyard, you'll see several large trees, which is quite a contrast from Parsons Prairie. And uh, we have squirrels for the first time in several years, you know. Uh, Squirrels were not a common sight where we lived because we didn't have a lot of trees around us. And uh, we have two small, rather effeminate squirrels that live in one tree to the left of the bird feeder. Uh, We've named them Laverne and Shirley. And then we have two larger squirrels that live in a tree to the right of the bird feeder. And uh, we call them Lenny and Squiggy. And Squiggy is a little bit nuts. Uh, He climbs down the tree and sits at the bottom of the tree doing what squirrels do sometimes, you know, cleaning his ears or wiping his brow or something. But then he proceeds to flip and twirl. Now, I've never seen Squirrel do that quite like he does. He, he kind of goes spastic, and he flips and twirls and chases his tail and rolls over. He literally does cartwheels and somersaults. And uh, for the life of me, I can't understand why. In the meantime, we have uh, quite the variety of birds in the backyard, and... Uh, it will take me quite some time to name them all, but we do have hummingbirds, and we do have goldfinches, and we have uh, cardinals and uh, wrens, and uh, there are cowbirds, and uh, there, of course, are the ubiquitous robins, and uh, we also have um, some blue jays, and, and nice ones, too. You know, My experience has been blue jays can be a little ill-tempered, but these guys are kind of pleasant. And uh, I don't know, you know, if that'll hold, but I'm enjoying them so far. But uh, that's a little bit of a picture of, of uh, the pastor's backyard today. And now down here in the basement, the air conditioner is running because it's still warm and humid out there. And uh, southern Indiana down in the southwest area there, just to the west of the Hoosier National Forest and to the east of the coal fields. And mines, and uh, that—that's a sticky proposition. But rains have been falling off and on for the last couple of days, and we're told that there's going to be a nice little uh, coolish snap coming up, which we welcome for sure. And uh, here in Jasper, the big event on the horizon is the Strassenfest and the German bunting and German flags and uh, so forth are going up in all the shop windows and down the main streets. And it's quite the celebration of Jasper's German heritage. And since my ancestor, Otto von Sinhorn, came over before the Revolutionary War and had his name changed to Sinkhorn we've always taken at least a little bit of pleasure in our long-distant German heritage. Truth is, we're about as American as they come, if you think about it. We've had ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War, ancestors who have fought in virtually every war that this country's been in. So fighting for America seems to make you pretty American, in my book, and for whatever that's worth. But we do enjoy our German heritage. And I have to admit, German food and some good beer aren't too bad either. But only enough to taste it and enjoy a refreshing beverage. Drunkenness, not cool. And so, now we move on to our study. God's Book for God's People and the Christian Believer Study on Knowing God with Heart and Mind. (laughs) Let's open with prayer now. Thank you God for your word, for the privilege of knowing your heart and mind, for inviting us into a deeply personal relationship with you. It is really unimaginable to try to comprehend how you love us. That your precious creation that turned its back on you, that rejected you, rejected your will, but more than that, rejected your love, is still not far from your heart. Even when generation after generation produces those who would spit in your eye, and even on Judgment Day, there will be those who will spit in your eye. And yet, Lord, you have welcomed us into your grace and received us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who saves us, who covers our sin and makes it possible for us to unite with you in a more intimate relationship than we're really capable of. And so, Lord, we seek your heart and mind, and we seek to synchronize yours with ours so that we might really live for your will and to be those who live to please you and honor you with our deeds and our actions and words and thoughts and prayers and with, more than anything, our love for each other, which is one of the ways that you most desire to see our love expressed to you. And so, Lord, we know that when we care for the least of our brothers and sisters, we have reached out to you in love, Therefore, make us people always mindful of those who are less fortunate. Make us people who may never know your heart and mind except through our words and deeds. And now, Lord, as we come together to study, please open our hearts and minds. Cause us to think more deeply and richly. And in some way, Lord, erase any error on this teacher's heart or this lips, this set of lips, Lord. Just bring only your message of truth and grace for your hungry servant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Christians are people of the book. The Bible is our basic document. And that begs the question, then what kind of book is it and where did we get it? And Why does it have such authority over our lives? Does that authority extend to uh, everyone or just to me as a reader? Is it a dependable enough book that I could bet my life and even my eternity on it? Other people have sacred books and documents. Does mine really have a greater claim over my life? and greater authority than those other books? These are hard questions that we have to ask and at least be prepared to give an answer for when our friends and acquaintances ask these questions. Now, as you read last week's scripture readings, uh, I hope that you, and I say last week, I should say, those scripture readings for this week that were assigned last week, uh, as you have read those, I hope that you've begun to notice some important things. The people in Josiah's time, for example, were called to a law that they had forgotten and recently found. And as they read it, they were torn by their conviction, and so much so that they repented for their ignorance. Deuteronomy and certainly uh, all of the books of the Pentateuch, which are those five books of the uh, author, uh, usually credited as Moses, have contained in them what is known in Jewish tradition and in Christian tradition, too, as the books of the law. And uh, they're really... Uh, can be deeply and richly interpreted in our minds as more of a book of God's character and how ours is to model and interact with God's character. But for many, it is a book of regulations and rules to live by, and since that gets fuzzy and cloudy, there have been plenty of people who have interpreted those rules and regulations by adding more, but always with a desire to honor God. And certainly, if people would live by those rules in the most plain way, the world would be a very different place from what it is now. And then we see the books of the New Testament, which tell a different story in a different way, but not so far away as you think. In fact, it has been said that the Old Testament is Christ concealed, and the New Testament is Christ revealed. And I believe that to be true. I believe that as you read through the Old Testament, you see evidence of Christ's coming. You see the fulfillment in the New Testament of what God has stated plainly about God's relationship with creation, especially humanity, in the Old Testament. In other words, we see God's character and God's expectations and God's hopes and dreams, I guess you could say, for humanity and for the world expressed in the Old Testament and yet repeatedly unfulfilled. But when Christ comes, we see God's Uh, completion of God's plan. And we can say that we see the completion of God's plan, even though we haven't entirely lived into it, because by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, we have read numerous passages in both Old and New Testament that tell us that we're not done yet, that while God has certainly completed the most significant work of God's plan in all of existence, there is still a part of the plan that is yet to be completed. And therefore, we still see signs of the brokenness that came into this world with sin and death. And so, this book is a book of books. It's a book with multiple chapters and books written by uh, 66 books, written by... Uh, 40 authors over a period of thousands of years. And somehow these books have compiled themselves together into a single book that tells the story of God's relationship with humanity from beginning to end. And of course, that's a big pill to swallow for people. And it's a little hard to imagine how that could have happened over thousands of years and still be a complete book and completely accurate telling of God's story. And so one of the things that happens when we read the Bible is we take it in faith that God has used the Bible and that God has spoken through the Bible. And it doesn't mean that humans who wrote it are somehow inerrant in their writing or in their humanity, but rather that God who has power to to correct and adjust the story and to give us the the corrective practices over the years so that we would have a complete book despite the many flaws and attempts to distort it and change it over all these thousands of years. It's kind of amazing. I'll give you an example. It's one of my favorites. Some of my old friends remember hearing me tell this story a couple of different times. But I was very fortunate on a certain occasion in Evanston, Illinois, to be able to hold in my hands one of the rarest old Bibles in existence. A collection of Bibles at uh, a certain institution had been uh, shared with a few of us students so that we could look at them. And this book was a King Henry the Eighth edition of the Bible. Now I bet you never knew there was a King Henry the Eighth edition of the Bible. I didn't. You've heard of the King James version of the Bible, and you've heard of a lot of other versions, but you probably never heard of a King Henry the Eighth Bible. Neither did I, and that's what makes it so rare, you see. But in the time during the uh, uh, breaking away of church uh, and state there in England during King Henry VIII's reign where he formed the Church of England and basically kicked out the Roman Catholic Church and uh, it's much more complicated than this but most of us have seen the movies and uh, his separation from uh, the Catholic Church is primarily due to the fact that he wanted a divorce that uh, the Pope wouldn't grant him And uh, but in a way he uh, with all his flaws had also ushered in some important reformation and he uh, Yet, with all his flaws, he had also created a version of the Bible with uh, his decrees and commands to those people he had commissioned to carefully rewrite it according to his expectations. Uh, he had created something that couldn't last. And you ask me how I can be so sure of that. Because it didn't. Now, I know this might sound almost childlike in my faith but the truth is is I have every reason to think that the that, that this King Henry the Bible is exceedingly rare because it is full of blasphemy or at least it's critically blasphemous in critically important places Even if it's verbatim, word for word, a good version up to a point, it must contain some heresy or something that God would not let continue, because it didn't. And so, holding in my hands this King Henry VIII Bible with its lovely picture of the king at the beginning of it, and knowing that this was a very, very rare work, also informed me that God doesn't let bad versions of the Bible stick around very long. I remember in my youth, there was an attempt to uh, create a Bible that was, well, it's kind of written by the Jesus Christ superstar crowd. And uh, someday I'll talk to you about my experience with that musical And uh, how much it affected my life in good and bad ways, but ultimately good. And uh, but for now, I just would say that this version of the Bible was an intentional effort to distort the truth in a way that would cause people to fall away from the faith. And the funny thing is, it didn't work. And the book never, ever went into circulation I've heard stories like this many times in my life. And so, if you ask me about the Bible as a book that God has helped put into existence and that God maintains the existence of it, I'm confident. I'm confident because I see so many things that can't be more or less than supernatural in their uh, effect. I have had too many occasions to listen to and interact with people who had nothing but the Bible for their uh, influence and have an effect on them in some way. And yet they have come into faith in Christ and they've seen their lives transformed. I have had the experience of talking with and witnessing the transformation in people's lives who were imprisoned and had nothing to do all day but read that bible and reading that bible changed them forever i don't i don't know how that happens apart from the holy spirit the words could be misinterpreted and misunderstood by someone whose goal was to see all the flaws in it and yet for someone who reads it with an open mind something amazing happens I don't understand it. But this is my personal view, and some may disagree with me about this, but this much I know for sure. The Bible has changed the world, and it is still changing the world. And if we don't recognize that there's something very unique and interesting about that, then we're not paying attention. And yet, it has been said that this may be the most biblically illiterate generation in all of human history after the beginning of scriptural knowledge, which precedes even the time of Christ. And so, what will the world be like when so few of us actually know what the Bible says and even fewer live according to its precepts? Martin Luther said that we must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. We should therefore diligently study God's word and know and assuredly believe God himself speaks to us through it. And I would say amen to that. It has also been said that the Bible interprets for us the events of today if we will question it to discover what God has said in the events of biblical history. In other words, those stories in the Bible may be old stories about old times and old things, but they reveal to us a very present and authentic truth about the nature of God, about God's character, about God's being. And what we find is, is that God is unchanging, that God is consistent throughout all of human history. God never changes. God always responds the same way to the human condition. So consider a time when writing materials were rare beyond imagining. Insights about uh, profound issues of time and eternity have entered into the thinking of a certain person or certain persons and some of them are learned and some are not. For the lines they were not clearly drawn in those days. Those who perceive this knowledge most deeply know they must share it with their community and save it for future generations. They sense that what they know has come from God, an idea they treat with caution and reverence. These are the words of Ellsworth Callus. He says, So they make a written record, a laborious process, and... In a nomadic world where preserving things is difficult, they nevertheless pass these materials on to the next generation. Younger generations are not always impressed with what their forebears have left behind. We marvel these documents were preserved when so much was against this being done. The documents accumulated. They were laws, some in great detail, records of small but dynamic people, and stories of individuals both common and exotic. They were songs, wise sayings, and stories of human struggle. And along the way, the writings of noble and courageous individuals, not cut from the common mold, whom we would call prophets. These documents do not seem at first to have any necessary relationship one to the other, and yet they come together, unlikely, and against great odds. We marvel at the people from whom these documents come. They were a nation, but not one considered significant by the usual measures of nationhood. They had roughly a century of stable existence before breaking into two smaller kingdoms, and after a time, one of the kingdoms disappeared into captivity and intermarriage with other people. And not long after, the remaining people were also taken into captivity, first by the Babylonians, then by the Persians. Even when in their homeland, they were usually under the control of some stronger political power, often one opposed to their religion, the religion of their book. Nevertheless, they kept their amazing documents and some along the way, in ways not fully known to us, the collection we now know as the Old Testament emerged from the many diverse documents circulating at the time. Small in number, as was the people of this book, the Jews in time, a people of still smaller in number, appeared, an equally persecuted one, the Christians. They were inheritors of the book partly because so many of the first of their number were themselves Jews, and particularly because they recognized the book as the ground out of which their own faith had sprung. Furthermore, they believed that the one whom they called Lord was anticipated in this book. Very shortly, the new people became a thriving body, quickly spreading to every part of the larger Mediterranean world and beyond, and just as quickly they began collecting documents of their own. At first, these documents were letters, especially from the learned rabbi Paul, in occasional notes written to churches he had founded or planned to visit. Then there were biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ, biographies so urgent and insistent that some readers don't want to call them biographies. They were, of course, biographers' biographies, lost my place. They were, of course, biographies of a particular kind in that their dominating theme was good news. That's what gospel means. Then a remarkable book written to the people in a time of severe persecution to sustain them in the knowledge that 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 at last their Lord would triumph, the book we call Revelation. Now, I wanted to read that excerpt from Dr. Callis' book there to give you a sense of the sweeping grandeur of the Bible that he so eloquently describes. And if only I could have eloquently read it to you. So, what kind of book is the Bible? Well, at first glance, it looks like a book that has a lot of problems. It's a book that, in so many ways, is, is uh, a collection of books, and yet once you begin to study it you see a very similar pattern throughout in the way that god acts as i said earlier and dr callis describes this process of the books coming together as uh, nomadic people transported them around you know that think about that for a minute so you're nomadic people and you've got a few camels or horses or donkeys or something and 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 some sons and daughters and wives and family and so forth. And you're carrying everything you need to survive, but you're also carefully carrying around these clay jars with rolled up scrolls in them. And somehow these scrolls managed to traverse the land and they managed to be kept intact so that they might be copied and continually read throughout ages. This is essentially what happens when you go to the synagogue or to the church and uh, someone brings out the scrolls of scripture in the synagogue or the Bible in the uh, church and they begin to share it with you. It's a word that is written on paper or papyrus or some other kind of, of material and it has been carried forward throughout time remarkably. And, of course, it's also a, a book uh, that was first and always an oral history and an oral telling. I am fascinated by some studies that I have read that perhaps there are actually Bible stories in the stars and that in the times before the stars and constellations had been changed in some way, Uh, To represent Greek and Roman mythology, somehow these characters have very similar characteristics to biblical stories from the Old Testament. And so it's easy to imagine then that uh, some ancient storyteller long ago speaking to the people of his tribe, basically his family, and uh, looks to the stars and says, tonight I want to tell you the story about things that have happened and things that will come and he repeats this oral history and you say okay well if it's an oral history then how in the world can it be trustworthy and true uh before it's been written down well you know the truth is is in many ways oral histories are more readily correctable than the written history uh In my life before ministry, there was a saying that we used quite often. We would say, if it ain't in writing, it ain't real. And to many uh, modern Westerners, that's a pretty trustworthy saying because people say all sorts of things, but they don't always mean what they say. And so what we're really talking about is a contract. But oral histories are different. Think about the oral histories and traditions of your family. Why, just last week, a person in church got up to pronounce the joy that he felt at having been married to his beautiful bride for 61 years, and before he could sit down and before the congregation could clap, his wife tugged on his hand and said, honey, that's 62 years. Now, that's what happens when you talk oral history. When the storyteller of old gets in front of the tribe and tells the story, the elders are listening, the wives are listening, the children are listening, all the people of the community are listening, and when the storyteller gets one of the critical details wrong, there will be someone there to correct him or her. And in that way, oral histories are in many ways more dependable because of this corrective quality. Because when I'm telling a story of a history or a meaningful event in the life of my family or in the life of uh, my friendships and my other relationships, they care as deeply about the story as I do. And for that reason, they're very quick to correct an error in the story. And you've seen those discussions where there's multiple disagreement about what the actual accurate version of the story is. And what do people do? They get passionate about it and somebody starts doing research and someone starts carefully checking the facts until a correct version of the story is being told. And yet, in the world of it ain't real unless it's in writing, we tend to think that if something's in a published book, If something is in a magazine article or some other written printed form, then it must be true. You know, the old joke that's gone around for years, well, if I got it off the internet, it has to be true. As though somehow things that go into publication in one form of media or the other have become factual. In many ways, oral history is far more dependable and so we can be thankful that our Bible is, in a way, a complete oral history that has been written down after generations of corrective conversation. You could be asking right now is, so why is it that this collection of oral traditions and ancient scrolls stored in jars of clay, has somehow evolved into this book? And how do we know we've got the right stuff? And and how is it that this book that is compiled into the one I hold in my hand or read on my computer screen is, in fact, the uh, same Bible that those jars of clay contained? These are all really great questions. And I can only give you a summary answer right now. Um, Needless to say, the class could spend 30 weeks just on the Bible, but here's, here's the short version. Now, after a certain amount of time of collecting the scriptures and the scrolls, and as societies advanced, sometime in the vicinity of 70 years before the birth of Christ, a collection of rabbis came up with... A, uh, a, a, a combined effort. Uh, it was called the Septuagint. And some people refer to that as the, the 70 elders, or it's a, it's a way of saying that, that a group of, of the greatest rabbis got together and they took all these scrolls and collected information and they compiled it into one uh, Greek version of what we would call the Old Testament, And this was really quite a great achievement and incredibly providential if you think about it. Because by the time Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, their collection of completed works were uh, sort of the standard. Now, the Bible... The Old Testament in Greek language was not the one that Jesus read from any more than you'll read Greek in a modern synagogue. They read Hebrew, but the benefit of the Greek translation of the Old Testament is that there is a continuity in the lexicon. In, in other words, they've created a certain kind of of uh, standard. Um, in in many ways as english is the standard language of the world it it isn't really that everybody in the world can speak english but if a language can't be translated into english uh then the words will be anglicized uh you know take uh, take spanish for example if you take modern words from the spanish language like the word for the computer in front of my screen guess what the word is computadora you know uh they translated the English into a a, uh, Spanish language pronunciation. So, this is what kind of the the essence of the Greek Septuagint is. Then, after Jesus, there is a collection of the writings that uh, have been generated in the formation of various churches. And Paul's writings, as you heard earlier, were kind of the beginning, you know, people hung on the words that he gave them for hope and understanding. And so, these were reproduced and copied to different organizations in the church and in the community, and they became a sort of scripture. And then there were these sayings of Jesus that had been compiled, and things that Jesus said turned into a bit of a collection of, of uh, readings. And and then as this process began to turn more anecdotal, it is around this time that the apostles who knew Jesus seem compelled to write down the true story of Jesus. And what is remarkable is that three of the four Gospels are synoptic, meaning that there is a synchronicity about them. They tell the same stories in some places and yet not in others. They tell the same stories, but from different perspectives. And in the four Gospels, we have four Uh, supportive images of Jesus so that he is a complete person in the Gospels and a complete understanding of who Jesus is emerges from the four Gospels. It is a question that is often asked, you know, why did they have to have four versions of the same story? Well, If you really read the stories and you study them, you'll see that they're not four versions telling the same story. They are, in fact, four versions of the life of Jesus told from four different perspectives to four different audiences with four different purposes. And this is, in a way, the same as how we Talked about the oral history a few minutes ago. When we talk about the oral histories, it is important that we tell those stories in the amongst the faithful to that story. So that the story like a family story uh, of a vacation or something is often told the same events but from different perspectives and and a lot of times in a family gathering the story is told from the perspective of the little child who saw it from a five-year-old's eyes and another one saw it from the 15-year-old's eyes and The parents saw it from the parents' point of view. And so, each is telling the same story, but from different perspectives. And a much more comprehensive understanding of the event comes out that way. So, this is how you can view the four Gospels. And then the letters that are uh, compiled into the epistles, is what they're called a lot of times, uh, are are written to different churches, and they teach us a lot of core values that become foundational to the very present-day church. And then you have in the Revelation, a unique story of a divine experience that this John of Patmos had that pretty much caps the whole story of humanity. Now, logical question then is, is why those books? Weren't other letters written? Were there other gospels? I've heard of other gospels. Why aren't they in there? This is the result of a process that uh, was engaged in in the earliest life of the church. Now, we get into some church history here, but I don't want to confuse this with that. But it, there was a point in the history of the church where Christianity became the uh, uh, state religion or accepted religion in Rome, and it was then that the state, or the in particular, Constantine, the emperor, who was the first Christian emperor, so-called, and it was by his leadership that councils were called together to verify the facts of what Christianity is and what Christianity is not. And in that re- in that way, we see uh, a a process of discernment and oral tradition. People saying, no, this isn't what Christians believe because Jesus didn't say that. He said this. And so, these these, uh, councils were held. And through these councils, some biblical uh, letters or things that we include in our Bible today were agreed to be true canon, that is, truly words that tell the story of God's relationship with humanity, and in particular, how it is fulfilled through Christ. And then there were those other stories that didn't support that in any particular way. Now, uh, the next question that always comes up is, Is well, aren't they just picking and choosing stories and letters and things that support what they want the Bible to say? That, too, is a fair question, but it goes further than that. They examine the stories and the letters, not so much for whether or not it supported what they uh, wanted it to say, but rather to see the continuity. In other words, there is so much consistency in the Bible in the, the proclamation of the character qualities of God And this proclamation of character qualities is then translated into the person Jesus, who is God in the flesh. And so Jesus, through his own words, witnessed by those who lived with him in the Gospels, is portrayed in a very clear light as having the same character qualities as God the Father. So with that in mind, we can reasonably conclude that Jesus is consistent with the God of the Old Testament in character and nature and the way that God views poverty and sin and death and and uh, uh, oppression and things like that and and uh, things that are right and wrong. And, and so, there's a clarity there that we can assume that because there were thousands of years of history of God being very consistent prior to Jesus' coming And those things that Jesus said and did that clearly indicate his consistency with the character of God make us able to see a window through which we can view things to whether or not they are, in fact, worthy of the canon of the Bible or the collection of acceptable books. So, when a certain gospel that isn't legitimate in the eyes of those who created the gospel canon— Uh, comes out and they say, no, that's not good, it's probably because there are things in there that indicate changes in the very character of Jesus and therefore the character of God. And that inconsistency with God's character is the thing. And with the inconsistency with the words becomes the thing. In the same way, any letters that were written, any epistles from other people outside of, of those that are in the Bible should they say things or neglect to say things that are consistent with the other canon books of the Bible and so there's this process of of discernment prayer consultation councils, as you would call them in the those days uh, combined with a, a sort of formula that says there is a there is a a, a prayer there are boundaries around the character of God as we understand God throughout the ages. And anything out of those bounds is probably not a legitimate source or not worthy of Scripture. And in that respect, they came to a conclusion to get the books that we now consider biblical canon. Now, there are a set of books that appear most often in Catholic Bibles that are called the apocryphal books. And these books don't say anything in particular about Jesus or anything in particular about God. It more is a historical account, and most of the apocryphal books account for the time uh, that comes at the end of the Old Testament and their 400-year span between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and those apocryphal books cover a lot of historical events, uh in that span but don't particularly say anything that informs us uh, ex- uh in in some exceptional way about the nature of god and christ so so there's a <laughs> i'm tired there's a really comprehensive summary if you want to call it that And uh, this is the Bible. This is how we got it. Now, this Bible has been fought and argued with uh, over the years. It's been argued over. and, And people have died to put these Bibles in other people's hands because once it was established as a kind of of a certain book of the knowledge of God, then there were people who wanted to have exclusive management of that knowledge. And so, in many respects, especially during the medieval times, it was a power thing to know what the Bible says and to be able to read the Bible. And there were plenty of people who did not know how to read and had to just take it for granted that those who did were telling them the whole story. Again, a very tricky situation. And uh, no wonder reforms came. And always, the Bible is the same. And the last thing I want to say about the development of the Bible, because honestly, this lesson could take five times longer than it has and still wouldn't give you enough. But I want to say this. The other thing that I recognize is what I told you way back at the beginning when I was talking about that King Henry Bible, is God has somehow sustained the versions that we read God seems to be more than forgiving of variations of the translations and the versions. And therefore, it is those sacred truths in Scripture that are maintained, even when it's translated from Hebrew to English or German or Japanese or whatever, even when it is translated from contemporary English to King James, uh, Elizabethan kind of these and thous, and and it, it survives, the truth survives variation but it won't survive heresy and god always seems to cancel out the heresies and this is something you can see as you look backward over church history is variations are okay but heresy is never okay and what is heresy it is absolute mistruth about god it is things that 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 portray god in an inappropriate way portray Jesus in an inappropriate way. And I'm talking about according to God's standards. It is, uh, it, it's a it's a very serious thing to take on translation of the Bible. And those who do, I believe, are under the watchful eye of the Holy Spirit, whether they believe it or not. And the Holy Spirit will uh, help them in their endeavor and will make their endeavor succeed as long as they don't Misuse their opportunity in a way that tells something about God's character that is absolutely untrue. And so when we talk about faith, we're really talking about faith in God's character more than we are in news and information about God. So take that with you for whatever it's worth and uh, take it from me. The best thing you can do is pick one and read it. Last word on the Bible before we move on. You will see that there are versions and there are translations. You will see, for example, the New Living Translation at the Christian bookstore. Then you will also see on the same shelf the New International Version. Versions are uh, Bibles that have been uh, redone, that is to say the research has been done over and they've gone backward to the oldest available texts and they have studied them again with new biblical Uh, knowledge, for example, about archaeological finds and things like that, and new language for new generations. But when it's all said and done, these are versions, are Bibles that have been completely reinvestigated and started from the oldest original documents, meaning that they are uh, the latest scholarly endeavor to give us the most accurate version of the Bible, a translation, like the New Living Translation, is usually a, uh, a, a, ver- a type of Bible that is taken from an existing version. So uh, that means that, the, the, for example, a, 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 a contemporary English version of the Bible might be a NIV, New International Version, that has been translated into contemporary English. And it means that the scholarly work is different. It means that the work is more on language than it is on uh, the actual historical and uh, archaeological information. So, there you have it. I'm tired. That was a lot of work. So, for next week, I want you to study the following scriptures. So, get your pencil ready and get ready to write down your readings for next week. I would like you to read Second Kings, chapter twenty-two. Whoops, wrong. Ha <laughs> ha! I want you to read. Uh, I want you to read from Genesis chapter one through three. So forget what I said a minute ago because I gave you the the readings you already had. For lesson four, read Genesis one to three, Job thirty-six, verse twenty-four. To uh, to chapter 41, verse 34. Job 36, chapter 36, verse 24, to chapter 41, verse 34. Read Psalms 8, Psalm 19, and Psalm 29. Read Isaiah 40, 12 to 41 twenty isaiah forty twelve forty one to twenty read John one one to eighteen Romans eight one to twenty seven and by the way, I'm going to put that in the description for this podcast so you'll be able to copy those and paste them into your browser or however you choose to use them. I should have done that all along. Please forgive me for not doing that. So look for the readings also listed in the description of today's podcast. Let us pray the prayer of Ann Steele, a 18th century saint. Father of mercies, in thy word, what endless glory shines. Forever be thy name adored. For these celestial lines. Oh, may these heavenly pages be my ever dear delight, and still new beauties may I see, and still increasing light. Amen. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today, for this week's lesson. uh, I hope you'll tune in again next week. Our lesson next week is uh, lesson number four, The God of Beginnings. Uh, This is going to be a discussion of the creation and the creator. And so, once again, if you're looking for a, uh, uh, a methodology to what we're doing, it's built around the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, and this is a way of uh, taking each of these core beliefs of Christian doctrine and breaking them down into an intensive study. So, be sure to look at the scriptures listed below in the description, and uh, be sure to pray and read scripture daily. This is a vital part of everyone's Christianity. Uh, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to this podcast, and I especially want to thank you for your patience with my technical issues. I have... uh, I have a new computer, some new software, and I'm just getting the hang of it. I I just found out about two-thirds of the way through this recording that uh, my – Recording was getting a kind of echo effect because I had a monitor turned on that shouldn't have been. So I want to thank you for your patience. I told you I was in the pastor's basement, and with an echo like that, you might think the pastor's basement was a cave. But I promise this podcast is going to get better with time. I just have to learn how to be a better uh, broadcaster and uh, better with the technology and the sound effects uh someone asked me last week they said you 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 said that there was a furnace near you and that your air conditioning and furnace unit were going to kick on and there would be noise in the background but all i could hear were birds singing i thought you're out in your yard well that's a bit of a throwback to when i was uh doing this up at parsons prairie and uh, i wanted to have some of the natural sounds that occurred there in the background and uh if you'd seen where I did the recording there, you could see how easily I could uh, include that and make it seem like a natural part. Uh, today, no background, uh, just, the, just the bumpers and the, and the stingers that will separate the segments, and uh, that's all. And you'll just have to hear the echo of my voice where I was mistakenly uh, leaving a certain button pushed that I shouldn't have, and you probably can hear my air conditioning running in the background. We'll just keep working on it. I want to thank you for supporting this podcast with your ears and your minds and your hearts, and especially by supporting my home church where I serve as the senior pastor, Jasper Shiloh United Methodist Church. You can look us up on the internet on shilohum.org, shilohum.org, that's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M. O-R-G. We'll welcome your visits there where you can hear sermon recordings and see what's going on in the life of Shiloh Church. Now, if you're far away from Shiloh, remember what I always tell you. This is not to be the only thing you do. You must be a part of a Christian fellowship somewhere. I urge you. If you haven't found the right church yet, I promise you, you will. But you need to worship with other people. Support your home church, and if you can and you want to, you can support this podcast by sending a donation to Shiloh United Methodist Church. You can do it on our website, and you can even make a notation that it's for this podcast. Thanks again. God bless you. Goodbye.